Welcome back, everyone, to episode eight of No Story Left Behind. Finally, it's been a couple months, but we're finally back. I am joined this week by my co-host, Steve, and producer, Casey, and guest host, Brian, is going to be popping in the chat here soon if you guys are streaming in live. This we are joined with retired Marine author, along with Bing West of Into the Fire, podcast host and business owner, also a Medal of Honor recipient, Dakota Meyer. Thank you, Dakota, for taking the time out of your day to join us on the show just want to introduce yourself to everybody listening real quick. I know. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it. Uh, I, I wanna, I've read your book. Well, I've read your book twice, and I, I've listened to the audio version as well. And there's just a lot to unpack there. So I just want to start at the beginning. Uh, where'd you grow up? Yes, I grew up in a, in a small town, Columbia, Kentucky. And uh, it's um, south central Kentucky. And uh Yeah. Uh, you know, what's the day in the life of, like in a small town of Kentucky? Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, everybody knows everybody. You got to watch, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, it's good. It's got its good things. and It's got its bad things. Right. I mean, it's got, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like being on base, right? Like everybody knows your shit. Everybody, everybody, everybody watches what you do. You know, everybody's got something to say. Everybody's got an opinion of you. It's got the good parts of it of where, if you know you need help, you've got a neighbor who's going to be there to help you too. You know what I mean? Uh, what did you do down there for fun? And did you what were you doing in school? Did you play sports or anything? Yeah, I mean, I play, I grew up playing sports, so I played sports. Uh, I whatever I could do to stay busy. Obviously, uh, I mean, I did everything from football to basketball to track. I mean, you know, year round, try and stay busy, and then. Uh, yeah, we had a farm, a family farm. So worked on that, uh, all through the summer and then, uh, you know, just a normal, no, normal, normal, <laughs> uh, normal farm life. And one of the, one of the stories you talk about in your book is learning how to ride that four wheeler, which I got yeah. a couple about, and I really think it speaks to your characters, uh, and say work ethic and stubbornness, if you will. Yeah, you know, like, I think, I think one of the things, I think everybody has a superpower, right? So, like, I think everybody inside them has a, um, a superpower. And once, I think you have natural superpowers, and I think you have uh, superpowers that, that are just, um, they become your superpowers based off of what, what's life thrown at you and how you dealt with it, right? So, I mean, I think one that I had in me just from the beginning was just I was too dumb to quit. You know what I mean? Like I was just, I, I, I just quitting wasn't an option. I was hard headed, stubborn, whatever you want to call it. I like to think of it as, as too dumb to quit. And, and it's something that's always, you know, stuck with me for some reason. So what were you like as a student? Were you, were you pain in the neck in, in school? And I mean, you kind of talked about being a good kid, but being a bit of a thorn in the side of your dad. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think as far as, as far as being a student, I think that, uh, you know, I, I wasn't a real good student. I think that part of that was just the fact that I was bored in school, you know, like I wasn't challenged, you know, I always seemed to thrive towards uh, coaches and uh, things like that, you know, people who, who challenged me and people who would demand the most of me. So I think that that's something that was, you know, was something that was always there, there for me. I'm more of a structure kind of guy. So like, I want structure. I want accountability. Like that's the stuff that, that, that drives me. Would, did that kind of 
uh, uh, steer you towards the direction of joining the military? Do you think? No, I, I, I mean, I don't think so at all. I think that, um, I mean, really it just came down to right place at the right time. You know, like as much as I thought that I had life figured out, um, you know, at 17 years old, I, I'd gone through, got, got all my paperwork filled out for the clearing house and to try to go play sports, you know, at the next level. And, um, you know, definitely, I'm not going to say that I was good enough to go. I, I, I wasn't going to go. I'm not gonna be like one of the guys like, yeah, you know, I could have went D one, blah, 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 but I, I could have definitely went D two and, and started as an outside linebacker. You know, I looked at going to a couple, I was, I was young. I was 17 when I graduated. So I was obviously the youngest in my group and sometimes playing against 19 year olds who's, I mean, you look at the the two years difference of, especially at that, that age, the, 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 the speed and the level that you could play at. So Honestly, I mean, I had planned my whole life around, I'm not going to say my whole life, but I had planned the next chapter of my life after high school um, as being going to probably a JUCO or a, a D2 school, Western Kentucky, something like that, Eastern Kentucky, playing football for a couple of years, redshirting, and then turning around and going and, and trying to play at the next level at a, at a D1 school like University of Kentucky or something like that. Um, you know, that, that, was, that was my that was kind of what I wanted to do, you know, and, uh, and, um, you know, just one day I walked in, there was a, a Marine recruiter and basically, you know, we just, he, he, I started talking to him, asking him a lot of smart like, questions. I, I didn't know much about the Marine Corps. My grandfather was a Marine and, um, he just never really said much about it. I mean, honestly, I didn't even know what the Marine Corps was, uh, the day that, that I went to this recruiter and, uh, you know, he just, he's like, well, you know, there's no way you'd ever make it as a Marine. And I'm like, oh, okay, done. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny. It's funny how they do that. I think, every time. I think I got set up. Um, <laughs> so, so he's like, uh, well, I mean, look, all I can do is promise you a tryout. I can't promise you. Uh, you, you won't make it, but I can just let you go to the tryouts. So I, uh, you know, that day I joined, I, I signed up that day and I left like, I couldn't leave earlier because I, I had already signed up to play on a uh, an all-star team for Kentucky down in Hawaii and so for football. So I had to still fulfill that obligation. So I went down there and played and turned around and left like six days later for boot camp. <laughs> what'd your, how'd your family react when you told them you're joining the Marine Corps? You know, like, I mean, obviously my grandfather was really proud. I mean, my grandpa was like, you know, he, he was over the top, um, my dad was, you know, same thing. My dad was proud. My grandmother was proud. I mean, you know, my, my mom definitely was not, but you know, I, I lived with my father. Um, I'll never forget, you know, my mom actually showed up to the day I was swearing in and uh, you know how like you go, you go through MEPS that day, you swear in at the end and then you jump on the bus right after that. Right. And, yep. uh, and you know, she was there at the swearing in. And by the time I was done with the oath, she'd already walked out and left. So, I mean, you said you're at, you're playing football and six days later you're leaving for boot camp. Yeah. Was, were you nervous? Uh, what was going through your mind on that? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that I was nervous. I mean, I just, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think, I think the nerves kick in for everyone as soon as you cross the bridge, right? Like as soon as they tell you, so I, you know, if you go to Paris Island, they, you know, as soon as you get to the front, like you never see the front gate, like before you get there, the bus driver will tell you, Hey, at this point, you got to put your head down. You can't look out the windows, blah, 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 blah. So you put your head down. And then the next thing, you know, 
the drill instructor that walks up. I mean, you can, it's, it's like etched inside of your mind. Um, your head's down, it's dark, it's late, you're tired because you've been, you know, riding some damn bus all the way down there. And then all of a sudden you hear just like these hard steps of those boots hitting out those, you know, those steps coming up the, onto the white bus. And then like, it's, it's fucking on. It's on. <laughs> like they, they have that shit down to a science. Like I, I just remember like it was, it was dead sound on the bus. Everyone was just fucking tense. And then this dude just steps on the bus, like you said, like hard ass boots. And he stops and stares at us for like five seconds. He's like, get the fuck off my bus. And it was like a mad dash. Like who could, you don't want to be the last one off the bus. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was nuts. Like I just, hold on. Sorry about that. No, no worries. It, it was, it was, it was nuts. I just, uh, yeah, it was nuts. I mean, you know, definitely the, it was definitely an experience and, and, you know, you just gotta like, it just like you just I, I think the coolest part about it is is just you know how, how you just don't know just how much your life's going to change right like I mean at that moment I mean that's the beginning of of like that's the end of 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 who you were and the beginning of who you're about to become uh, so once you get off the bus you know obviously you're then under their under their command what was boot camp like for you you know, I think, like, I mean, I, I'll say this, like, as far as all the services, like, I mean, look, I, I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, you know, Marines are the best, blah, 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 <laughs> right? I mean, we look the best, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> the uniforms are damn good. Like, like we, 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 we look the best, and, and that's just because of the way we're built, right? If you look at the way that the, and I can go, that's a whole deep story of, of the way things are designed, but, but I, I'll say this, like, the Marine Corps is basically broken down, the, the boot camp, I will say this about the Marine, Marine Corps. The boot camp, they've got the best boot camp there is. They've got it down to an art. Um, you talk about something that every company should try to incorporate in everybody, right? Every, everybody who has something, it doesn't matter, a brand or whatever. The Marine Corps has got, like, they know the way to build Marines, to build people, to believe in the institution and a cause bigger than them. Like, there's no... There's nobody who's going to take more pride in who they are than a, than a, than a fucking Marine, right? Um, and I mean, and it's built by design because if you look at their boot camp, you take, you got three months, right? So the first month of it is them just breaking you down and showing you how weak you are as an individual. It's them basically just, it's, it's kind of like the reprogramming of, hey, you can try to do things the way that you used to but this is why they don't work. And let me show you how they do not work. Right. And so it's like the ultimate suck fest. And then what they do is the next month is they teach you the history. They teach you the history of, of the great things that Marines did. And, and that they've gone way city, you know, you talk about where they were instilled the history of it. Right. And then they spend the last month training you on how to live up to those people that came before you that they built up in your mind and to live up to the standards for them. Because if you look at the uniform, you know, the blood stripes, every aspect of it has a meaning of people who came before you every, you know, everything does. And uh, th there's so much thought put behind everything. And that's what makes Marines different. The only thing that makes Marines different than anybody else is the standards that we hold ourselves to. Right. I mean, we will, 
we will we will hold each other to a standard that dictates we'll accept nothing less than being the best. That's why we're so fucking miserable all the time. <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because and, and we do it right. It's out of design because it's attention to detail. It's like it's like you know, like we are so focused on the small shit, and, and it's like the dumbest shit, right? Did you shave today? You know, all, all this crazy shit. But it's, it's for a reason to make sure that we continue to make each other the best that we can fucking be at all times, right? And, uh, you know, you speak about the branding. Uh, I think, well, me and Steve graduated in 07. And I remember the the recruiting advertisements coming in post 9-11. I'd say the Marine Corps was probably the most memorable one for me. You know, yeah. the guy in the uniform at the very end yeah. was incredible. proud the few of the Marines. And very simple compared to you look at the Navy and now the army ones seem to be kind of simplifying a little bit more in the last few years. Compared to then. But they, so in boot camp, I mean, did you have any memorable, memorable instructors? Any? Oh yeah. I remember, listen, I remember every one of them. We had a <laughs> senior, senior drill instructor, staff sergeant Corsi. We had a uh, Sergeant Brady. And then we also had um, Sergeant Lee and Sergeant Lee was our kill hat. Brady was our, um, Brady was our, whatever drill hat whatever they call it right and it was just you know like i i like the first i mean look the first two to three weeks i mean it's 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 a it's a soul searching time you know what i mean like i mean you guys know i mean it's it's just one of those times like man you 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 got it you got to breathe from the from the fire hose and then once you start figuring out you know, kind of the aspects of it. And once you start embracing, like, and once you stop fighting it and you just start embracing it, you know, that's when you can start having fun with it. Uh, I, I'll full disclosure. I never went military. I, I went the fluff route of five years of college and drinking and partying in a, in a frat house. Uh, so yeah. you're going to have to, <laughs> so a kill hat. What's that now? Yeah, so basically what it is is that the, they, they design it. You've got three you've got three instructors. Your senior drill instructor is kind of like the guy who oversees everything. He's uh, he's kind of like the dad of the of the uh, he's like the savior of all of it, right? And then you've got your kill hat and his job is literally like like you talk about the hardest job I think in the Marine Corps is to be a kill hat. I mean, those guys, they do nothing but fuck your life up. 24-7, they play games with you, they destroy you. Like their entire job is to just make you as miserable as possible, right? And then you've got your drill hat, who's more there as a instructor, right? To teach you these things and to develop you and train you to get you, you know, to the next to, to the next whatever we're doing, right? Any any memories that you look back on? Whoops, sorry, go ahead, Steve. I was gonna say I always thought that was uh that was like the hardest fucking job in the army was being that guy that's just on you like 24 hours a day. Cause like, while you're there, yeah, it sucks. But like looking back on it, like that dude, like never got to go home. Oh. He's got to scream all day. Like I would get through like three days and my voice would be gone. <laughs> and I always had people that would be like, man, you should go, you should go to drill sergeant school. Like you can project, you can be an asshole and you want to be, and I'm like, fuck that. I don't want to do that job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean like, like seriously, like I know some guys, some of my buddies now, you know, I've been drill instructors and stuff. And like those guys will have four or five uniforms because they sweat yep. through them all day long. Like they don't go home. <laughs> like the kill hat guy is like the newest guy on the team, right? He's the newest drill instructor. Yep. He's got to do like a like I don't know how many cycles it is, 
as the kill hat and then he goes up to a drill hat and then a drill hat goes up to a senior. Right. And um, I mean, those guys, I'm telling you, those guys are just, and, and the females too, like they are just, I mean, they are the backbone of, of, I mean, they're the foundation of, of all of our services. So it's just an, it's an incredible people do that job. I could never do it. I could never fucking do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, was, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I had, I had a lot of crazy stories, man. Like, you know, they would just, they would play so many games. Y'all never forget. So we had this one room and it was like, I swear it wasn't, it wasn't six foot by eight, six foot, eight foot maybe. Right. And it was our, we call it the Maytag room. Right. So that's where our washer and dryer were. So we call it the Maytag room or whatever. And, um, or I don't, I, yeah, there was a washer and dryer. In there. So anyways, we, um, the, the, the drill, uh, the kill hat was just like, he always had this weird voice. And he was always, he always said very well, very well, very well. And so like he would go through and he checked something and he was like, very well, everybody to the Maytag room. And we're like, what? There's 120 of us in here. It's like one of the first few days. And man, we had to fit all of us in there and he closed the door. And uh, dude, we're like suffocating in there. And the senior comes out and the senior's like, drill instructor, Sergeant Lee. And uh, uh, Sergeant Lee was like, Yes, senior drill instructor. He goes, where's uh, where's the recruits? And he goes, I haven't seen them. And uh, and he goes, are they in the fucking Maytag room? And he goes, uh, yes, senior drill instructor. And he goes, get them the fuck out. One of them's going to die. He's like, very well. Very well. We're going to have to go to another room. And he put us in one smaller. And the senior drill instructor came out and he's like, just certainly get the fuck out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here right now. And so, like, I got to the point to where, like, I was, I was, um, I was doing pretty good, right? Like, I was, it was getting harder to break me. I would, I would test the drill instructors a little bit, you know, like, just like, yeah, whatever. Like, you could smoke me all day. Let's do it, you know? And um, so, what he would do is, drill instructor Sergeant Lee, so you had uh, the, the lights would come on in the morning, right? And, and everybody had to be in their rack. So, everybody has to be in their rack uh, when the lights come on. And, you know, it's like, cause there are rules about how they can do this. Like it's a, it's a strict schedule and like all that. And I'll never, so like, he would always tell me, he goes, uh, about probably about after a month and a half in, he goes, Hey, listen, you need to be ready. I don't know how you're going to do it. Just make it magically happen, but you need to be ready by the time the lights come on, because I got something special for you every morning from now on. One morning. Okay. Okay. So like I would sleep, I wouldn't even sleep under my, my blanket because the bed had to be made. So what I would do is I would take boot bands and I would make my bed so tight and I would sleep on top of it. So, it's, and I would get dressed in the, in the head before everybody came in and then I just jump up and I was ready to go. And, uh, <laughs> he would take me out every morning around the back while everybody had like a 30 minute cleanup. And he would just, he would just, just make me roll in the sand and he'd spray me with water in the sand and shit like that. So I had to start my day off fucking sandy. (laughs) From other guests on the show, I've heard that, you know, you don't want to be someone that sticks out. You want to be invisible to the drill structures. It sounds like you were. I stuck out. Yeah. (laughs) I stuck out. So after, after boot camp, where did you go from there? So I graduated boot camp and then I went to uh, Camp Geiger, North Carolina. Actually, well, I mean, I came home for like 10 days of, of, of um, 
we call it boot leave and then turned around and went back to Camp Geiger, North Carolina, uh, completed infantry training out there and then turned around and, uh, I became an, I was an 0311, just a basic infantryman. And then, uh, went, got stationed in Hawaii. And so went out there, I was with third battalion, third Marines and, uh, got out there, got out there, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, right? Yeah. Right around Thanksgiving leave, got out there and then, uh, yeah, I mean, I was out there and then, um, a sniper indoc came up like maybe like January, February of that, that year. And then I tried out for that. I wanted to do that. thought it was pretty cool. And then, uh, actually joined, uh, joined the sniper platoon, did the indoc and all that. And then right after that, we, it was pretty cool because we were, we were heading out on deployment in July for Iraq and, um, right. Like, one where they had a sniper school dropout. And so usually you have to go on a deployment and then come back and go to sniper school. But I was the only guy in the platoon that was qualified to go that had all the prerequisites, all the, you know, everything you needed to get in. So they're like, look, you can either go home on pre-deployment leave or you can go to sniper school. And I was like, done. I'm going to sniper school. I don't need to see my family. So Dakota. <laughs> Um, I'm Brian. I don't know. You probably see it, but, um, kind of a buff. I've read pretty much every book. Uh, I have definitely read your book. Uh, you, you're one of what, like three people living that carry the medal of honor. Uh, so I'm, so I'm the, there's only two U S Marines since the Vietnam war, myself and Kyle Carpenter. There's like, I don't know how many there is maybe like, I, I don't know. I don't like, there's like 90 or something like, cause most of them are from, I think we got a couple of World War II guys left. We got a bunch of Vietnam guys. And then there's like, I don't know, like 11 or 12, something, something like that. I mean, most of them are Army. There's only, like I said, there's only two Marines uh, living. Yeah, you take it in, in, in pretty good stride, man. But I, I will let everybody on screen or that is listening that um, they don't just hand out the Medal of Honor. Like, it's a huge deal. And most of the people that they do give it to are not alive <laughs> yeah i don't know the statistics on it. i think there's only been like in the total history of it of it of the award being uh given out it's like five thousand. it's it's pretty slim so uh yeah i'm like gordon how do you get these these people on your show <laughs> uh i chalk it up to a lot of my math answers in college a pfm or pure fucking magic <laughs> yeah, I, like uh, I gotta say, like listening to you to Dakota, man, it's goosebumps, and I appreciate it. So uh, that that's my breakaway. But uh, the the thing I was gonna ask, based on the thing that you were last talking about, now you're talking about the the Marine snipers in sniper school. That's usually what the third, uh, and there aren't very many what like special groups in the Marines, yeah. and that that's one of them. Yeah. Right. So what was a generation kill was a show that was sort of built around that. Uh, uh, You've seen that or I mean, how do you feel about the way the third is connected with like you guys kind of wore those hat, those black caps of watch caps. And like, is that all? Is that true? Is that bullshit? Like, so I'll I'll be honest with you. I've never seen it. Uh, (laughs) um, What do you mean? Like the black hats or what do you mean? Yeah. 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 Like they would wear those watch caps. Like, is that like your unit designation? They were like, hey. No, no, I mean, no, I mean, you know, like us, like, I mean, we, you know, 
I always, you know, our, the, the guys, the platoon I was in, and, and every platoon's different. Um, we kind of took the approach that that we are. I mean, look, we, we didn't we didn't look any different than anybody else. You know what I mean? Like, um, we always. I mean, I, I will say this: when I first became a sniper, I was nasty. I was pretty nasty, like as we call it. Like I, I had the ro- low sleeves. Like I had the long. Hair. I mean, I always had the long hair for sure. I was With the long hair, yeah. I was always <laughs> pushing, pushing the regs on that for sure. That never stopped. Um, but I, I was kind of nasty, and then like I was like that until I became a team leader. And then once I became a team leader, I started understanding the dynamics and that like um, that like when when I go in and I need to get a battalion commander to trust me to go out and, and run my own mission. I need to walk in and look as squared away as possible. If he can't be confident that I can get my, like that, that, that I don't walk in and I don't look like I can do it, then why would he ever believe in, in me doing the right thing outside? So I, I, we, we didn't, we, we, we didn't do that. Are there some guys that, that have their own shit? I mean, of course. Right. Yep. So I've heard, but yeah. Yeah. Man. <laughs> So uh, you you went through the sniper program, and if I remember correctly, Dakota, you're one of the youngest or the youngest people to graduate that. Yeah, I mean, at that time, I I, I you know I was probably I mean I was eighteen years old, um, eighteen years old sniper in the Marine Corps. I don't, you can't get much younger than that. Um, so you know I yeah I mean I, I would say I don't know I was ever that I don't know that I'm the youngest sniper uh, marine sniper ever but I would say at that time I was the youngest sniper in the marine corps and why the sniper program I know it's definitely not a cakewalk to say the least and you know yeah. I just I always looked at the guys like like the guys who were who were snipers and I always looked up to them as as you know, like they were always out, they were working out all the time. Like they were always making themselves better. They were always, you know, they were just, they were just always into something. And I, I really liked the challenge of it. And, and I just, you know, I, I joined them and yeah, I mean, the guys, it was mainly the guys, like I, the guys, I looked up to the guys. in it. And how, how was it for you? I, I know, I know very little about the sniper school, but I know one of the big things you got to make your own ghillie suit. And then there's the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, uh, Stock a uh, little stock up to the instructor without getting caught. I mean, how yeah. do you- well, they do the same thing every school? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I struggle. I like uh, I I struggled with it at first. Um, it was something that was pretty hard for me, and then I ended up I ended up doing great. Uh, yeah, but it's I mean, you know, you got to make your own ghillie suit. You make your own ghillie suit, and then you know you, you learn all about camouflage, concealment. Um, and then you have to, you know, you do stalk lanes and you're graded. That's a section of the school that you're graded on. And, you know, you started at a thousand meters on a stalk lane. You've got, you know, your left lateral limit, and your right lateral limit, you know, kind of like a bowling lane. And, um, and then you have to, you know, get within a certain distance. Of, I think it's like, they'll name it. Usually it's like 300 yards. I think I, I don't, I can't remember exactly what it was, but, but you get within a certain distance, you stalk up, you got a certain time, you, you, you know, usually four or five hours and you get within a certain distance and then you, you take a shot, right. With a blank at the instructor. And so, and then what happens is, is they have another so an instructor out there walking and uh, he gets within, I think it's 15 meters and he'll stand there. And then the, 
the spotter or the target, the instructor who's there on the glass, is looking at you with like with optics and is like looking for you. And so he, he gets a chance to walk the uh, walk the instructor on you. Like he'll say, like, okay, uh, three, three, three steps to the left, one step back, and then he'll say, sniper at your feet. And if you're there, well, you're done. If you're not there, then um, then you, you know, then what happens is, is he's looking in that area and you have to take another shot. So you got to make sure that your muzzle blast is all laid out. You got to make sure that all that, like if you're on the ground and there's dirt in front of you, you know, you got to do shit like pour water down there before you've done this and, and all this other stuff to make sure that he can't see the, you know, the, you know, the, the muzzle blast. Yeah, like the dust from the, yeah. And so, then he gets another chance to walk the instructor on you. And then if he doesn't catch you then, then if the, the instructor comes over, he looks at your, you know, your weapon, make sure that your adjustment on your scope was right. Because if your adjustment on your scope wasn't right, well, then you missed. And so, you know, make sure everything, you did everything right. And then, you know, then you get a hundred and you pass. Do they make you, they make you excel too without getting caught? Because I know they did that to us, and, and guys would get sloppy because they'd be like, sweet, I got the shot off, and then they'd go to move, and they'd get fucking nailed every time. Yep, exactly. So if you get if you're spotted in that first run, do you get another shot, or is that a complete fail and you're out of the program? I think, well, so, well, I mean, you get, so it's like, it's I think it's like, a, I think you get 10 stocks maybe. I, I can't remember the exact amount. And you got to have a certain percentage to pass, right? So, like, you can fail. You can botch a couple of them, you know. And, and there's different like scores for it. I can't remember all of it, but but yeah, I mean, you you don't you don't you're not gonna fail just for failing one. But yeah, I mean, yeah. And I imagine there. I, well, I know there's a lot of math with being a sniper. That were, did you excel in math in school? Yeah, I mean, I, like math is like my strong suit. Um, but yeah, there, there's a lot of math. I mean, you know, I never thought in school that I would use the Pythagorean theorem, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I used it quite a bit. I, I, I know Stephen Casey can do a test to it. I will go great lengths out of my way to avoid doing anything past basic arithmetic. Yeah. Gordon, can you Just, count? Yeah, I don't have that luxury. Well, I mean, we just got colors. What was it last year? <laughs> so uh, after you're in Hawaii, I mean, how long were you down in Hawaii and when did you get deployed? Well, so I left, you know, I graduated boot camp or graduated a uh, sniper school and then turned around and left like a week, week and a half later for, um, for um, Iraq. And so we were in Fallujah, Iraq, in a place called Karma. And uh, I, I was there for a short period of time. I ended up getting bit on my hand by a spider and uh, lost movement and had nerve damage. I had two surgeries, one in uh, – actually, I had two surgeries in Fallujah Surgical. And then uh, they ended up sending me to Balad, then Al-Assad, then Al-Assad back to – I was in Lunchstool for a little bit, uh, working on my hand, and then they ended up sending me back home. And, That's uh, so fucking random. <laughs> Yeah. I know it was terrible. Like you can probably that was, see uh, that was a rec uh, recluse, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah. I've seen pictures of, of recluse of recluse spiders, and that's as close as I ever care to come. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I got so I got sent home. I was home for 
and I was home for a while and uh, probably two years before I got to, you know, before I got another opportunity to deploy because my, my unit was still over there for another six months, five months, five months. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was a dark spot. You know, I came back, lost one of my best friends um, from high school. He got killed in a car wreck. Uh, lost another close friend. She got killed while I was home on uh, on leave. Um, uh, you know, it was kind of just it's kind of just like a, a roll, you know, roll the dice. And uh, and then I come back and I'm just so down because like my guys are over there. You know, they're they're deployed. I, I didn't. You know, it's just it's you know. I, yeah, that sucks. This is it was a shitty time. You know, and and um, you know the last thing you want to do is be what they call a boot again. Right. Like, like, you know, most of it's just the, the fact of being able to, to say that you've gone through the deployment so that, you know, you've got that under your belt. And so it's kind of shitty, you know, and um, I, uh, I I ended up becoming a sniper team leader. I went to Mountain Sniper School, um, graduated there and then became a sniper team leader and had my own team. And we were crushing it, getting ready to head back to Iraq again. And then I got an opportunity to go to Afghanistan and I just. I took jumped on it because I knew we, you know, we didn't really have much going on in Iraq uh, when we were going over there and, you know, we had no mission for snipers. So I was like, I'm going to go jump on this opportunity for Afghanistan. You know, I went with an embedded training team and, and that's, that's where I went. So what year did you uh, jump into that position? 2009. Okay. Uh, and what was going through your mind? Well, first time man when you in Iraq and then when you when you went to uh, Afghanistan um what was it like when you first got there well taught <laughs> um, I'm there I mean that's probably the most distinct piece of it is when you get off you know that 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 airplane and the, just when the first time you breathe that air is, oh my god it, it's 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 just remembering it's just it, 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 you remember that as much as you remember those footsteps walking on the damn bus uh um, like sun's pushing you down it is it's just like it's, it's like, like it's like you're breathing out of a, a hairdryer <laughs> and um it an analogy <laughs> you're like oh shit right and um you know i i don't think you know i Afghanistan, I'll never, or Iraq, when we left for Iraq, I'll never forget, you know, I'll never forget that, like, I, we because we were on a civilian plane and we took off, um, I think it was Hickam maybe, and we're taking off, and I'll never forget, like, I remember just looking out the window and looking at, as long as I could, looking at the earth and seeing Hawaii, you know, as we're taking off. And I'll never forget it. It just hit me that, you know, this could this could be the last time that I that I ever see the United States of America. And so it was kind of it's kind of surreal feeling. Right. And then yeah. you know, the second time, whenever I headed over to Afghanistan, I just um, it wasn't as dramatic because I was leaving from Japan, Okinawa, Japan. But, you know, I, I do remember it, it was, um, you know, and honestly, I, we didn't even think we were going like. I, you know, we didn't even know that we were going to be, you know, the guys before me, they, they'd only been in one gunfight in nine months. So we didn't think it was going to be much kinetic. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just different, you know? When you, so what, what month yeah. was it during 2000? Uh, so left um, July, July. And then, you know, again, July in 2009 and, and, and got there. 
I got to my base at the end of July in 2009. And, um, you know, I never forget like coming in, it's like, so like mountainous where we were at. It's like crazy mountains. And, um, you know, pulled in there and, and the guys were like, yeah, man, you know, it's an easy spot. You know, we want to do this, this, you know, we got one gunfight one time. Don't, don't, don't think there's going to be much action. It's going to be a long deployment. You're not going to be doing much. And, uh, holy shit. That was not the truth. <laughs> was that before, or did you join team Monty right away? Yeah, that, that was team Monty when we got that up was. there. Okay. So we all went up there. It was myself, um, Kenefic, uh, Lieutenant Johnson, and then uh, Doc Layton. And when you went to Team Monty, there's a there's a photograph in your book of you. Uh, I know you came under sniper fire. And you just hop on the 50 cal and start putting rounds to range. Was that on the way up to Team Monty, or have you already been stationed there for a while? Well, no, that was that was later on. I um, the first gunfight we got into is me is actually it was crazy. Me and Kenefic Kenefic was actually in the head. We we had like a little trailer. Um, we had a little trailer on this, like to the side of where we all stayed at. And, uh, there was a trailer there and it had like, it had like showers in it, like three showers or four showers, you know, three or four toilets and some sinks and stuff. And we Dude, were actually in there. I was stopping for a second. It's funny. You're like, there was like a, these amenities from home and that that's like your memory from it. <laughs> like Gordon's asking you about shooting a machine gun and like, <laughs> yeah, well, I just I remember like, when we were standing, like, me and him were standing in there and shaving, and all of a sudden, like I got done first, and Kenefix in there, and all of a sudden I opened the door, and I like, I just hear like, it's like, um, like when you hit a paper with a pencil, right? It's just like crack, 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 and I was like, are we getting fucking shot at? <laughs> and I looked around, and then I started seeing like some some dust on from the ground like popping up and i'm like fuck yeah we're getting shot at and then all of a sudden i hear like a, i hear like a doom, 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 doom. and then like next thing you know you got boom boom you know of mortars and i was like oh yeah it's fucking on right and so uh so me and kenefic i'm like kenefic we're getting fucking shot at and so like he runs out and like lieutenant johnson him and, and late they ran into this bunker we had this you know this big hesco bunker and they're in there, and I'm like, fuck this. Like, I'm getting down. Like, it's on. And so um, I run into the to the uh, to our hooch, we called it, right? And it, it, it had no protection, like none. And so, like, I run in there, and I grab my flak, and I run back into the uh, into the uh, the bunker, and I'm trying to get a plan together, and they're, like, sitting in there. And I said, well, are we going to get down or what? And they're like, uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, let's talk to the army. And I'm like, dude, I'm gonna go get your all shit. So I ran in there and grabbed their shit for them, brought it back to them, threw it to them, and then I grabbed the 240 uh, that I kept in my room, and I grabbed two buck, like two uh, cans of ammo. And I'm like, dude, we're taking all this, all these rounds from there was like a mountain right next to us. I'm like, we're taking all these rounds from over there. I'm like, I'm gonna go up there on this on the front corner bunker. And I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can see anything. So like I run over there and uh, I crawled up in this bunker and we got you know some Afghan soldiers up in there and they're shooting and doing their job. And uh, I see you're talking about ETT. Yeah, I'm an embedded training team. And so I, like I, it was just four U.S. and eighty Afghans. 
And so, um, so like I run up there and I'm standing next to him. I'm like, where's he at? And they're like, oh, they're up there and by the cell phone tower. And dude, I see this guy, he's down at the bottom of this hill and he shoots this fucking RPG right at us. Right. And it hits the road right in front of us. And I like see him and Kinnevik is sitting right next to me. And the guy, like, like there's this little road that goes up to this cell phone. Like there's like a little cell phone tower. And then on the back side of it, there was like where he, I guess where he was probably parked or something. Right. And so like he takes off running up that hill and I just like, I, Oh gosh, I got fucking hammered him. Right. And, um, it was beautiful. And so I'm like getting down up there and then like Kinnepick and them, I run out of ammo. So they bring me more ammo and this gunfight goes on for probably 45 minutes to an hour. And, uh, like, it, it was just, it was, it was so funny, man. Like it was, it was the start of all of it. And then we kept, we started getting hit all the time. So when you were, so you're part of a, the four man team of us soldiers, but you're there as advisors working with, uh, with the Afghan army kind of training them in. Yeah. When you're, when you're not dealing with firefights, what's your day to day like with them? You know I mean? I, look, I love my guys. Like I, I, my, Afghan soldiers, some of the best dudes I've ever met in my entire life. Um, you know, they, they, you know, they're really good guys. And, you know, they, I, I had a lot of just, I mean, we got close, you know, like it was, they're like family. Like they were as close to me as the Marines were. And, um, you know, we're all out there together. We might've come from two different places. Uh, we might believe in two different things, but so does probably everybody sitting on this damn call right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I think that, you know, once we set those differences aside, um, you know, we're all just human beings just trying to do the best we can for, for something that we believe in. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, we did everything from training them on weapons to teaching them logistics to, I mean, you, you name it, we did it, right? I don't think a lot of people understand that, though, is like, like we're fighting with them. You know, yeah. it's not just like we're not we're not going over there to fight. I mean, we're we're fighting like less than a percent of them. Like ninety nine percent of them are good people, and I, I mean, I had the same experience where probably like two thirds of our forces was A and A Afghan National Army, and we, uh, yeah, we went out with them on every single patrol. They, I mean, they got they got killed way more than we did. Like they they did the lion's share of the work. <laughs> and I'll tell you this: if they had the equipment we did, they'd be way better at fighting than we are. Oh yeah, we they some of those dudes are crazy. We had one dude on top of the wall, and we were shooting. And he's like, "I'm going over there, cover me." And he's pointing across the field. And my my buddy was on the other side, is like, "You're fucking crazy." And he goes, "No, we're crazy, cover me." And this dude legitimately jumps off a ten foot wall and just starts booking it straight towards the enemy across the open field. I'm like, what a badass! <laughs> I don't know how you can get shot. They've been doing this their whole life. I mean, yeah. you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like you might train martial arts and shit like that, but go fight a a, a kid that uh, go go do get in a street fight with a kid that grew up fighting his whole damn life. Right. Uh, yeah. You were the first was, advisor team. Oh, sorry, Steve. Go ahead. One, one second. I was going to say, like, what you were saying about them, like living this. Um, I, I remember the first firefight I was in, and like it, it was a different guy on my team getting shot at, you know, it's not my sector of fire, which is like the hardest fucking thing to maintain sector discipline when you're getting shot at from a different direction. And there's like three kids, like 50 meters in front of me. And they just sit down in the middle of the field. They're just watching the show. Cause like, that's their life. Like they've been living that since, since day one. That's their life. Hey, do you want me to turn my lights on so you can see me? It got dark here. 
No, I can see you just fine, but if you want, whatever. Yeah, we. I mean, we can still see you. It just looks like you're uh, just floating in space right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dakota Meyer reporting from the moon, everyone. <laughs> it's kind of a green screen situation, actually. <laughs> Sorry about the pop, man. Oh, that's when I was good. just moving the screen back and forth or what? No, you're good, man. That's good. All right. Um, yeah. So, so you know, it was, it, that, that's kind of what the everyday life was with them. I mean, they're just damn good guys. I mean, I, you know, I miss them as much as I miss my teammates. You know. So, um, doing the doing the training thing was that something that you kind of expected to be doing, um, or yeah. was that just that's okay? Where, that's what our primary role is going over is to to train them and, and advise them. Well, I, I guess I'm I'm talking like kind of more before like when you were when you were going through sniper school and all that and working and then oh, like okay. became a team lead and. No, I mean this is just something they pick random people for. You know, they try to get various ranks, various skill sets. So you've got a more of a variety, but no, I mean, I mean, but you know what, like, like the Marine Corps teaches you, like they're really big on train the trainer, you know, like after you, as you, you know, the more you become in leadership, the more, you know, I mean, they teach you communication skills. They teach you how to teach classes and stuff like that. So it wasn't something that I, you know, was not, you know, it wasn't accustomed to me. Right. Like I could, you know, I could teach people how to do my job. Okay. And when you you mentioned you first when you first get there, uh, you meet Hafez, who was kind of the the guy in charge with the the ANA. Obviously, no, so he was my interpreter. He was my interpreter, right? So he interpreter. was a sergeant major. He okay. Was, he, was, he used to be a sergeant major of the uh, of the Afghan National Army, right? So um, just just a really damn good guy. His name was uh, so his name is actually Fazel. We can say it now because he. He's actually an American now. We we, okay. we put hot feds because then it was like it was a security issue. Right. But uh, Fazel and uh, this guy just, I mean, he was good. I mean, he was good. He, he was he was better than any of the Afghan soldiers. I mean, he was damn good. You, you mentioned in the book, you know, when he first meets you and your team, you know, he kind of has his script that he's now said who knows how many times other advisors coming in. And you talk about how you were – hanging out with and eating with the Afghans, uh, was that kind of, was that standard with other teams that they've worked with or was that, did you take you know, that? I, got, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, most, you know, most time the Americans stuck as the Americans and the Afghans stuck as the Afghans. And I, I think that honestly, I think those decisions of the relationships that I formed with them is ultimately what decided the destiny of if I lived or died. And, um, you know, I mean, you think about it, right. Uh, you know, the, the, the place where everybody connects, you think about you as your family. Like, where's the time that, you know, if you hold the rules, that everybody, even after, you know, whether it's before they leave in the morning, whether it's in the afternoon, where do people usually go have meetings at? Right. Right? Around a table. Okay. Around a table, right? Breaking bread. Um, you look at You look at most of the times when, you know, when you go back to the Bible, right? Like, it was, it was breaking bread. It was, you know, that, that, that's where business gets done and that's where relationships are formed and that's where bonds are formed. And that is, is something, I mean, you, you look at Thanksgiving, you look at Easter, you look at all these things, where do we all come together at a table? So I, I was really big on um, showing these people that, that look, I'm, I'm, I'm in it with them. Like, I'm not going to be just another American group that comes in and leaves them, uh, 
Like I'm here, I believe in my cause and, 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 and you have to earn that respect, right? Like you have to, you have to earn that respect. I mean, you talk about these guys live it, they live there, it's their country. And, 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 and like you get, you do this for nine months and go home and, and they don't, they, they stay forever. They have to fight their way to go see their family. Right. So it's one of those deals like of, of respect and you got to show them like these guys have been in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gunfights. And, you know, they've never seen you fight. They don't know if you're going to fight you know, they don't know how you're going to show up. All they know is of what the last person showed them. And that's, that's kind of what it is. And so you've got to come in and you've got to earn your, your spot at the table with them. I mean, they, they'll do small stuff. Like when you would come in and you shake their hand at first, they pull your hand towards them and turn it over to where their hands on top. Right. And that's like a show of, of dominance. And they do shit like that to, 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 to test you, to show you that like, you know, we're, we're dominant. I mean, you know, and that's, it's just, it's just part of, part of the game, you know? Knowing that after a while, if you met somebody new, for example, and you were to turn your hand dominant or corrected so you're even keel, is that a sign of disrespect then? Um, kind of showing, hey, no, I know what you're doing. It's not, it's, not, it's not a sign of disrespect. I mean, I, I think you have to do it to kind of, you, you, you have to, and you know, you, you definitely like, I, I would never walk up to them and jerk their hand towards me like that. Um, but I tell you this, I, like, I wouldn't let them, I let them know real quick that they're not going to do it to me. Right. Like if they did it, I'd jerk it back and, 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 you know, look straight at them. Like they'd know. So, I mean, it's just, it's little stuff like that. They want to see, they're going to see how much they can walk on. You, you know what I mean? Like they're going to see if, if you're going to buck up or not. Like that's, you know, it's just, it's, well, that's how they do it. You talk about how they had a lot of questions about our culture being over here. Yeah. Did you ask them a lot of questions? Did you have stuff to ask them as well? Was it a give and take? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we would sit up. I'll never forget. We had over top of, uh, they had like their, their chow hall. And uh, so what we would do is we go through, I would get a, 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 a meal just like them, right? Usually it was potato, uh, rice, uh, some a little bit of meat, and then uh, um, some bread, right? And so we would go up on top because it's so damn hot in the, in the, um, the cap, the, whatever you'll call it, the chow hall. So we would get on top of the roof at night and sit on top of the roof and eat. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we would sit up there and we'd eat and we'd just talk. You know, I had a, had a lot of good guys, you know, Gol Rahim, Yudada Lee. I mean, a lot of guys just really close to, and, uh, Chennai and, uh, <clears throat> you know, we would, we just kind of talk about home, right? Like I get to know them, their family. Um, they do the same with me. So when you're, I mean, what were you guys doing for fun when you're over there besides this, you know, chat and get to know each other? I mean, did you have much downtime? Did you get a chance? We a, oh, we played a lot of damn volleyball. So we built the volleyball <laughs> court and um, we built the volleyball court on base. And then we took sandbags and filled them. And that was like the, the boundary line. And so we played volleyball all the time and, you know, just, we did that. And then um, I, I would always, I, I like to go out front, out, out the front gate and play soccer with the kids and shit, you know, like, you know, just always, always trying to do whatever I could. You ever try them at snowball fights? You ever try what? You ever try them at snowball fights? Uh, no. Because no. we did we did that once and we got our asses kicked like they they, they know how to throw a snowball. <laughs> you know, usually, 
usually um, whatever they challenge you at, they know they're already going to fucking beat you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually the odds are going to be stacked against you. <laughs> uh, did you guys, uh, did you guys ever have a chance to uh, like call home and keep in touch with family and friends? Did you FaceTime or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I use Skype a lot. Um, you know, we had a sat phone uh, just in case. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I tried to call home as much as I could. Um, you know, uh, it definitely in, until until the gunfight started, right? When when shit got really bad, like um, I, I quit calling home much after after uh, September eighth. Like I didn't, I don't think I called home much more after that. And I do. I want to get into uh, September seventh here. Um, not to give any spoilers away from any listeners that haven't read the book yet, but um, now you were at an outpost not far. There's a FOB or forward operating base Joyce, which is, I think you went over it in the book about how far that is from the nearest, like, I guess, large base or how, I don't know if that's yeah. on that. It's not, yeah, it's down next to Asadabad. Right. Uh, now, did you have time to, did you have any R and R or to be able to come home during this deployment? I know Steve came home. You had a two week window there. You came back. And yeah, that was just because our sergeant major fucked up the uh, timeline. Because like nine months is supposed to be no R and R, but he uh, he had it like two hundred and seventy three days or some shit. So he fucked that one up and had to give us R and R. But yeah, <laughs> typically well, so nine we, months, we, no. They they had actually gave us like they were going to give us R and R. Yeah, I mean I I didn't know if I was going to take it or not. I just I was so nervous to leave my team. Um, it, it was like it, I just you know I didn't I, I had honestly uh, so we were going to take it in rotations on the team, and I had said that I'll go last. I just wanted to side last. I just I really didn't want to go home because um, I just wanted to stay over there. You know what I mean? Uh, but but you know, yeah we we were going to get R and R. And being out that far, I imagine that the the USO doesn't send entertainers out to fobs or outposts like yours. I mean, did you have to uh, go back and see anything? No, I mean, you know, no, no, where I was at, I mean, you know, it was a, you know, I mean, you, you didn't, you didn't really. No, we we if we had generators and power, we were we were happy. And, well, just to backtrack a little bit. So in the book, you mentioned that you wanted to, or you're kind of itching for that firefight and you were sent to team Monty and to quote from the book uh, that way headquarters didn't have to put me, put up with me on a daily basis. Uh, you're. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, um, I mean, I, I'm look, I'm not going to say I was, I was anything special, but I was good at my job. I'm not good at a lot, <laughs> but I was good at what I did. Um, Cause I dedicated my whole life to it. Uh, I loved it. I like being a, a sniper was not, it was not a, it, being a Marine sniper was not a, it wasn't a job to me. It was, it was, it was a way of life. And um, I, I was engulfed in it. Like I lived it. I loved it. Um, and, you know, with that comes a, a level of, of, you know, ego, um, confidence. <clears throat> I got into a, quite a few gunfights. Uh, up to that point and you know I thought they were good gunfights I thought that that was you know look I'd been in combat and uh I thought I was good you know what I mean I thought I was good every every 
every firefight I'd been in, I, you know, not that any of them were fair, right? Like, not that you ever want a gunfight to be fair. Uh, you know, you always want to have, look, there's one thing that we truly believe in as Americans when we get in gunfights, and that's overwhelming gun, uh, overwhelming firepower. Um, that's, that's for a reason. And, as long as we got a it's overwhelming, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say that, like, I was, I was always looking for a fight. Like, I was always, if I could instigate a fight, if I could do something to, to set, you know, if, if I seen a, a spot that was, you know, kind of mediocre, or if I could see, if I seen a spot that was a little bit hot, like, I'd throw some gas on it, right, just to, just to get the fucking fire going. Um, it was Sergeant Johnson, right, that sent you, assigned you to Team Monty? Uh, you Lieutenant Johnson. Yeah. yeah, Lieutenant. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so you know, I, I went up there, and and you know, headquarters didn't really like it. The guys who were running the teams didn't really like me. They didn't care for me. Uh, yeah, my leadership. They they weren't. They they, they you know, the, the further I could be away from them, the further <laughs> I could be out of their hair was the better. Was it just a, a personality difference, if you will? Yeah, I mean, look, I was the only sniper on the team, um, and I just, you know, I was. I had a, I, look, I wasn't, I wasn't a yes man. I was going to ask you why, why are we doing this? Why are we going on this mission? Like, does this make sense? Do we have a reason to go on this mission? Or are we just out fucking off and taking unnecessary risk? Right? Like, is this, is this, you know, it, it, like, are you trained up to speed? Like I would call people out and um, are you qualified to do this? Like, like, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't just going to say yes. And I wasn't just going to go with the flow. Um, if it wasn't right, it wasn't fucking right. And I would call it out. And so, you know, that is a, when you've got weak leadership, like I had, um, that's a, that's an issue. <laughs> I was going to say a good, uh, a good leader will recognize that. Yeah. Because well, I used to do it with my team leader, like, like, why the fuck are we going this way on Expo? We're going to get shot at. And, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't always agree with me, but he'd always listen to me. And like, that's, that's the mark of a good leader. But right. yeah, you got a weak, you got a weak leader. And yeah, I, I agree with you. That's, that's when it becomes an issue, but would you would you say that's uh, you did that out of your experience uh, just from life and how were you raised? Plus, the, you you know going to sniper school and that's a whole other education on top of itself. Or now here we are, almost ten years later, or a little over ten years. Was it just I'm Dakota and I'm at this point what nineteen twenty, just kind of being uh, a young pain in the ass, if you will? Because looking back at myself ten years ago. I was a complete dumbass and I thought I was right, but now hindsight being 2020. No, I never, I'll say this. Like I never asked questions that I, I didn't know. I didn't, I never got out of my lane. Um, I, I was just good at my job. I knew what the fuck to ask. I knew, uh, you know, the one thing that always stuck with me in sniper school, I had a guy named Michael Skinner and uh, he always told me, he said, look, ultimately you're, you are. So when, when nobody else is a sniper around you, you are what's called the SEO, right? And, it's, and snipe, you know, you are the, the ultimate decision of, of how to employ a sniper. You know, nobody else knows how. And, and you know, we do uh, a lot of mission planning. Uh, that's something that was very huge to us, of the detailed planning of, of you know, of, of all this. And so when it came down to that, and uh, when it came down to me being a part of something that, other Marines were part of, if I didn't know what, you know, if I, if I had a question, I was going to ask it because other guys lives were on the line. And so, you know, it was never, 
it was never uh, it was never out of just being argumentative. It was it was honestly out of being a professional and and, and being a professional in 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 my craft and 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 wanting to get make sure that we had all thought this out. It's just the mark of a good infantryman, though, is being able to to be that asshole when you need to be. Yeah, I mean, it's being a professional. Yeah. And a lot of the missions that you were on over there was the key leader engagements. What was local engagement like and what were the short and long-term goals that command had with that? Yeah. I mean, look, ultimately you want to go out and build relationships, right? They, they also, the locals also knew the rotations of when new guys came in and out. I mean, they know it probably as good as anybody, like, um, you know, so so going and 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 you know building relationships with them of coming in and, and making sure they know that you've got security under figuring out their concerns, trying to trying to you know win over the the as they called it at that time the hearts and minds of of your areas you're in. And I'm going to tell you something like th- there's something to it, right? Like like if you go in and and you know because look, there's two levels of of, of of I call Taliban or enemy, right? You've got, you've got the real Taliban. I call it the Taliban with a capital T. The dudes that are trained that come in and and look, everybody hates them. Like even the locals hate them. Like like look, everybody wants them gone. Like they are, I mean they are, they're the bad guys. And then you've also got this level of respect. Like you go in and and you don't respect these elders. And and well, you're you're gonna, you might have an IED on the road tomorrow, right? Like. Like, you know, you, 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 you gotta go in and win over the, the majority of, of the locals in order to stop the, you know, the, the free movement of, of the Taliban. Right. And, and you mentioned, you know, you'd go in, you'd have tea with the elders. I mean, was it your team, team Monty that was kind of leading that, or did you just kind of go in there and be the guiding hand, if you will, for the, we always had our own area, right? So at Cop Monty, like anybody in that district, Asmar district is what it was called. Uh, you know, we, we were always, you know, going out and having meter, meetings with the key leaders, you know, uh, going in, checking in with them, um, you know, just, just going to the district centers, doing things like that, like covering their polling elections and stuff like that, you know, hey, what's going through here? Get, getting intel on the bad guys coming through and, and, you know, things like that, you know, always just trying to do what we can to, to make the world a little bit better. And I know there's a lot of tribal politics over there. How did you guys navigate those tribal politics and work with them? If elders didn't necessarily agree with with B, did you try to bridge that gap or just kind of worry about them as individuals? Look, I wasn't there to change Afghanistan. I wasn't there to, to raise Afghans. I wasn't there to try to make them have a different place, right? I was there to kill evil. And um, I think, you know, you got to kind of separate yourself from it. Right. And and you got to, you know, look, look, you're, you're on their land. I mean, how would you feel if, if I was over here? You know, if, if they came over here or, you know, how, how would you feel if I came to your place? I probably get a little bit better greeting if I went through the head of the household than I would if I just went through there and said, hey, look, I got more guns than you and shit and I'm going to come and do whatever I want. So I always took that spin on it. Um, I just treated people like I'd want to be treated. And I always tried to uphold that. And I always kept my word. You know, that's another thing. Like you don't want to, you don't want to promise something or say something that you're not going to back up because, 
you know, then you ultimately lose confidence. You lose trust. I mean, it's same. It's a. It's no different than friendships here. It's no different than relationships here. It's the same shit, right? And, um, you know, so that was kind of. I stayed out of the tribal stuff. Um, I let them deal with that. Like they have their own rules, their own laws. Let them do that. You don't want to get into that. Um, I was literally there just to help them get rid of the enemy that we all hate. Which I, I enjoyed hearing that from you on other podcasts and in, in the book, because it, it's a different spin, I think, uh, from what we're given here. Like I said, I've never served. So just the news media, you know, the, the quick headline that you might find on Facebook scrolling through. Well, most people don't want to do research and think for themselves, right? Right. <laughs> that sounds like exactly. work. <laughs> Who does that? Exactly. So they just, you know, um, they want a quick answer to everything, and, and they want a black and white answer to everything. They want to live in the gray, but they want a black and white answer to everything. And it's like, uh, you know, it's not it's, – it's a complicated deal. And going back to, you know, being at Team Monty, it was early September while you were up there. Uh, 2007 was it nine, nine excuse me uh you guys came under under rocket fire or mach- rocket and machine gun fire and i just want to read the opening paragraph from chapter six uh a few weeks later it was combat outpost monty's turn to feel the full force of the rockets it's early september just before dinner one evening i heard the thump thump of two rockets launched from tubes somewhere on the hill above us we started taking consecrated concentrated rocket fire from the Afghan side of the base. We had taken RPG shots before, of course, but ro- several rockets come incoming barrage style was a new experience. The douchemen were firing on a direct lay from the hilltop from the Southeast while the gunners were looking straight down at Monty. You go on later in chapter six, talk about, you know, your team knew that there's a possibility they weren't coming home, but it the way I kind of interpret it in the book, it seems like that was your sobering moment, if you will. That's when you know, the, the old added shit got real. Would you agree with that? I, I, would, I would say for the team, yeah. Um, I think it was probably the closest that anybody comes dying uh, on my team. Um, you know, a rocket hit right next to Johnson and, and uh, Kinefic, and then we got hammered hard. Like we got like that rocket attack was they were dialed in and I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing I hate more. Um, I can't stand the noise of bottle rockets. Cause that's exactly what a rocket sounds like. Fuck no. Like, it's, like, it's a whistling sound, right? And, the, like that fluttering it makes when it goes through the air. Fuck that. It's the worst. Right. And like, and like, even though you duck when you hear the whistling, like, it doesn't matter. Like if the damn thing was going to hit you, it already hit you. There's no reason in ducking. Um, so like, I, I hate rockets. Like I, I, you can shoot at me all day, but dude, I, that's one thing I, I still can't stand. I, I can't stand the sound of thought of rockets. Um, but they hit close. They hit a tower I was in. Um, a guy lost a leg in there with me. Um, you know, I had to carry him down. Uh, two flights of stairs that were exposed on the outside of it as a, a rocket hit the side of that building. Uh, it just, it was, it was just a really, a really bad day. And afterwards, I think it was the other guys finally took it serious. Um, they, they just, you could tell that, that, that it woke them up and um, you know, they, they, we all had to talk, man, that, <clears throat> you know, we're not all going to make it home. And uh, that was on September uh, 7th. 
no, September 6th, because that was on a, a, a Sunday, September 6th. And then uh, on the 7th, we went down to Monty, or to, uh, to, sorry, we were on Monty. And then on the 7th, we went down to uh, Fob Joyce, where we met up with the rest of the team and got briefed. And then that, that next morning, we went out September 8th to Ganjgaon. Yeah, so September 7th is when you got the call from Fob Joyce, you know, they had to send down the Afghans. But they didn't really tell you why, what was going on. And then that's no, you, couldn't, you couldn't tell it over the cell phones. Uh, you know, we just, we, you, you don't want to talk over those cell phones. They're unsecured. You never know. Um, you, you know, it's a big risk for any of the word to get out. So you just, you kind of try to keep it under wraps as much as you can, especially when working with a, you know, a, you know, a counter, you know, a counter force. And so then you guys get the call to come down with them shortly thereafter. When you're at Fob Joyce, they tell you, hey, you're going into into the uh, Ganjagal town. Or is it Ganjagal Valley or Ganjagal town? Ganjagal Valley. Valley. When, and you had, the, that's when Hafez said, you know, something was off. Or after talking to him, he goes, bad people, bad place. Yeah. And I know, so kind of walk me through what was going on through that lead up. <laughs> You know, we got a brief on it. I um, I brought up a couple of issues I didn't like about the mission. My team was not happy that they took me out of the mission and left me at the trucks. And, and Johnson and Kinefic were not happy about this. Uh, me and Rodriguez Chavez and the team had came up with what I did that day. We came up with that plan the night before. And uh, it wasn't like I came up with this plan that, that like, this was what we had agreed to do. And um you know, Kinefic even argued with our first sergeant and like, nope, he's out, you know, he's going to sit at the trucks and replaced me with a guy named Gunnery Sergeant Johnson. And Gunnery Johnson was a good dude, just a good, good dude. And um, um, yeah, so we were supposed to go in the next morning for a key leader engagement and uh, go in and meet with the elders. And... <clears throat> So you went, you, you know, obviously they, they sat you out. Is it just because you were asking questions or you're questioning their, their. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot to it. Like they looked at me as, you know, more of it was they wanted to give up the opportunity to Gunny Johnson to go get in a gun gunfight, which is, you know, okay. I guess he got it. Like, I guess he got in the gunfight. Right. I mean, I just, right. it's just, a, it's just a shitty, you know, it's a whole, it's a shitty, just the whole aspect behind it. Like, you know, you can't justify why the fuck they did what they did, you know? So going up, you, you went into the Valley that morning of how were, from your perspective, how were things going just out the get go? I mean, you know, it's normal, the, you know, the normal, the normal, you know, the, the normal complacency, uh, with, with my leadership, you know, like they were always complacent. They're always, I'll never forget one of them came up to me and was like, well, let's just hope we get back and we can eat chow at the chow hall. And it's, you know, it's just shit like that. You know, their priorities were off already. You know, their mindset wasn't there. Like they, that, I promise you, they didn't go in there ready to fucking fight. Like they didn't go in there with that. Like they didn't, like the mission wasn't, you know, it's just a bunch of bullshit. And so, and so, I mean, this is what happens when you put guys who aren't warriors in, to do warrior jobs, right? And um, so I'll never forget going in there. We were all nervous. And the whole ride in there, we were talking about, 
home and just what we were going to do when we got home and stuff like that. Pulled in there, it's under darkness. And, you know, when Kennefit got out, he said, I'll, I'll see you on the flip side, Meyer. And uh, I'll never forget Don Ali, like he would, he yelled at me through the dark and he said, he always called me Maeda. And he's like, uh, see you later, Maeda. And um, actually, I think he, so he, we used to say fuck you to each other. Like he liked that word. So he's like, fuck you, Maeda. And, um, you know, they just went off in the dark, started heading into the valley. So when did, so did the, did your team actually get a chance to meet with the elders there or did things just, you know. So Fazel was next to him when the gunfight kicked off. And Fazel says that, you know, cause my team was in the front and Fazel said that when Lieutenant Johnson greeted this huge guy with a beard, um, that the guy just, you know, basically they just opened up on him. And, the, and that's when things kind of went to hell in a handbasket, if you will, yeah. from there. Yeah, it went, it went to a shit show. So if you don't mind, this kind of, for listeners that don't know the story and who haven't read the book, do you mind just walking us through the event? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it, basically we went in, they, they went in, became, came under fire. Uh, after a while, me and Gunny Rodriguez Chavez, you know, decided we had to go in and help. So we requested a few times to go in and um, each time told no. And finally we just went in, we drove the truck in, Rod drove the truck in and, I was in the turret and, uh, you know, we just went in and kept making trips, well, at trip after trip, loading bodies in the back and, uh, trying to find my teammates, you know, my teammates went missing. And then, um, after about six, eight hours, we you know, finally found them in a trench and they were all, they'd all been killed. And, and throughout that firefight, you were denied artillery support, correct? And that was, yeah, we were pretty much, was yeah. just a policy because you were too close to potential civilians. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that was a policy that was put in, you know, about a, a 30 to 45 days before that, that, uh, the, this is what the policy readed the rules of engagement. It said that, um, that you cannot fire within a certain distance of a village unless now you ready for this, unless you have gone through the entire village and made sure that only the enemy is in there and no civilians. That doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah, well, ask Stanley McChrystal. That's uh, that's ROE for you. As as an outsider looking in, it seems like there should be a clause there, unless and in- so they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be right. Like they're right. supposed to be. Uh, when you give your initials in any call for fire scenario, when you give your initials, it ultimately takes. It's supposed to, by doctrine, take uh, the the uh, responsibility off of the people who are firing it, the firing commander or whatever, and put it ultimately on you because you are the eyes on the ground. Right. And uh, you, you, you technically should be the battle scene commander because you're on the ground. And uh, you know, they just, the army was not, they were not giving it to us. That was what uh, Swenson attempted to do. Right. Let's take that responsibility. Yep. Oh. And I know you guys asked for air support as well, but there was also troops already in combat, which was taking the, the bulk of that response. But uh, I know there's call for, or they said that uh, little birds were 15 minutes out and called multiple times, but never showed. Was there ever a reason for that or? I mean, they were just caught up in a tick. It was, a, it was actually Kiowa's and they were actually caught up in a tick. They were supporting a, a higher tier mission of an HVT up in the uh, Corngold Valley. So, uh, you know, and, and the SEALs who were in that gunfight, 
we're needing support. So they, you know, they, they're a, pro- a higher priority than us. And it, yeah, and it, I, it, listeners that haven't read the book, you, you really need to, um, because yeah. it's, it's impossible to try to describe it shorthand. Of yeah. everything so it's a long day. Uh, yes. You said six, eight hours was the total yeah. gunfight. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really long day. And you, you said already uh, your team was killed over there. You managed to find them. Um, the part that had me, I, I, I know it's on paper and I'm reading in front of me, but it's like a freaking blockbuster movie going on in front of me of yeah. you know, the, the helicopter pilots that are assisting you and you driving in and out with Humvee, you know, grabbing people along the way. Did you ever get a chance to meet up with the pilots afterwards? Still close friends with a guy named, uh, his name's Salino uh, Yosarian. And um, yeah, I mean, dude saved my life. I mean, you know, he was flying. There was a couple times I literally could have jumped up, touched a skid on his, on his aircraft. And he was, he was shooting guys out the door of his aircraft with his M4. There's just not a mon- enough money in the world to get me in a helicopter under normal situations. But this guy, he's literally flying and looking in through windows yeah. or and calling in locations for you yeah and are you you're talking to him directly on the radio at that point correct I, I was I had my own radio on me and so yeah I was talking to him directly so when did and in the book you talk about and I've heard you on other podcasts as well you actually started going building to building yourself and that so was- I, I, I was just starting go, I was going to terrace to terrace I never got up to the buildings uh they were like kind of further up and I just I, there, I never had a reason to get up in there. You know, they were fighting from the buildings. They had strongholds in there, man. And just like, um, but they were trying to retreat too. Like, you know, like after they seen that they weren't going to break us, like they started trying to get their ass back over the border. And this was all, they had this very well planned out from what it sounds oh, like. Yeah. I mean, this it, is because there's a delay in the mission in the first place, correct? So yeah. they full opportunity what a good 24 hours at least to set up yeah it got leaked uh you know so we had to we when when you're working with the uh the you know when we were working with the afghan border police the afghan uh national police and that like you know you you like they are shady as shit right um so (laughs) yeah it's always the police i mean the every time every time yeah and so you bring your team home and you, but it was the, the Afghans, they saw you helping their guys out of there. Uh, yeah. I can't remember how many people you ended up bringing home. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, but the, they well, end up helping you out. Yeah. So the Afghans, you know, like I, I helped carry every one of their bodies out, right. Uh, their guys that they had lost and, you know, I wasn't going to leave until, until I got everybody out. Like it wasn't going to be a, I mean, it didn't matter. It wasn't a, a me and them. It wasn't a, um, I mean, we were there together and they, they were, you know, they're, they're my brothers too. And so, you know, I, I was fighting to get them out. And, um, you know, whenever I found my teammates, I told them, I said, cause we were, I was still under, we were under pretty good machine gun fire. And uh, I had told Fazel, I said, Hey, let them know, like, don't come over here. I don't want any more getting hurt. Um, let me just get them out. I'll carry them out myself. I said, they're my teammates. I'll fucking carry them out by myself. And uh, I told him, actually, I told him, don't tell him, don't touch them. And uh, he looked at me, he put his hand on my shoulder 
And uh, it was the first time that day that I broke down. Like I, I, um, I'll never forget. I picked up Gunny Johnson and, and threw him over my over my back. And uh, Rigor Mortis had already set in. And I, I don't know. Like I carried out, you know, a couple bodies already. And um, I never really felt how exhausted I was. And um, I threw Gunny Johnson over my back, picked him up, and started to carry him out. And I just I fell flat on my face. And I just like that, I broke down, like I broke down and like, um, I just, I couldn't believe it, you know? And, um, Ozell came over to me and he said, Hey, check it out. Like, like you need to wipe those tears up. You don't fucking cry in front of these other guys. Like he said, uh, he said, they're going to, they're that, you know, you, you need like, it's not something you do. And, um, he's like, uh, they're going to help you carry them out. And I said, don't tell, tell them not to touch them. And he goes, no, they they said that you helped them carry their brothers out, and they're going to help you carry yours out. And um, they did, you know, they 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 helped me, and and we put um we put Gunny Johnson and Doc Layton in the first truck, and then we put uh, Lieutenant Johnson and, and Kinnefic in the second truck, and um, I ended up jumping in the second truck, which had an Afghan driver. And it had uh, me and Fazel, and then I I sat in the back with uh, Kinnefic and Johnson, and rode back to base. And this whole time, well, you were shot right in the elbow during all that. I took a piece of shrapnel in my in my right elbow. Yeah. And despite that, I mean, you're still busting your ass off, bringing everybody out of that. Yeah, I mean, it didn't matter. I mean, I, you know, I I remember one time in the turret, it sounded like static being over top of my head like it, it was so much it was so much fire um I just I remember it going through my head like you know I'm just waiting for one to it's, it's gonna be lights out right like I just I was just waiting but I had always told myself like like fuck these guys right like they're like they're gonna have to they're gonna have to kill me like that's the one oath like like I, I never thought, I never thought like after Rodriguez, I shot a guy in the front and Rodriguez ran over a guy. Like they were trying to jump on the truck. And at, at the point, at that point, I was like, man, I'm, I'm a dead man. Like I'm, I'm dead. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna fucking die. Um, but I didn't, I didn't even care. You know what I mean? Like it was like, just let, let's get this over with. And you talk about that in the book that you and your gun became one. I mean, you were just kind of another piece there to kind of turn it. And, and point in the right direction. Yeah. Would you say, and you talk about that, you know, how you just kind of became numb. Was that reckless abandonment or was it just, I'm here to do my job? No, I mean, I think it's just, I think it's just, uh, it's just like a level of commitment. Right. I think it's just like, uh, like, uh, you know, it's the same as, as when you get down to a cause, right. Like, you know, after it's just, it's, it's, it, it was like, you know, like you just go into this mode of, of numbness of nothing really matters. Right. Like everything for me slowed down. Like it got really, really slow. And, and um, you know, it was like, it was like a calm, like it, it was like a calm, uh, you know, you just like, what do you got to worry about? Right. Like, like you know, it's just like, yeah, it's yeah. It's like acceptance. I know Gordon, we've talked about that before. Yeah. Uh, with a couple other guys on the show, like that's that's the only way to be effective and to do a lot of that shit is to feel like, well, I'm gonna die here. Like I'm already dead. I'm just buying as much time as I can. 
So the, the days afterwards, I mean, how far into this deployment were you in and how much time did you, were you supposed to have left with the team? Uh, you know, so we were like, we were like, you know, I mean, we, I mean, we had a long time to go, you know, like we were only there for, we got there July, August, September. I mean, you're talking, I've been there for two and a half months. And how long did you end up staying there before you ended up coming home? Did I what? Before you came home. I know you, there in the book, you kind of talk about your, your ping pong match against the, against the, um, I can't think of her name now. Oh uh, yeah. Katie cop. Yes. Yeah. Post firefight. And then, you know, having that game against her, how much time passed and. So I got sent home Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, I ended up actually landing in in the United States on December 5th um, of 2009. So I was in quite a few more gunfights. I mean, I went up and got into a gunfight that I feel was a lot worse than that day, four days later. Um, You know, uh, I mean, I was in a lot more, like we were in gun, we were two and three a day sometimes. And, for you, I mean, what was going through your head at that point? I mean, what was it kind of um, or uh, um, your perception or your demeanor working with everybody? No, you know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I lost eleven guys that day. Um, you know, uh, to include my Afghans, and I just, you know, I. I just kind of went into like a mode, right? Like it was, it was autopilot. Um, I went back two days later after I lost my team. I mean, I went back that night. I lost my team, put them in the freezers. Um, did, you know, did the proper respects for them, put the flags over them, uh, tossed them on the birds. And um, as soon as I did that, I literally walked across base, washed my hands and, and went to the chow hall and ate lunch or ate dinner. And, um, well, actually I didn't eat dinner. I went straight over to the Afghan side of the base and I made sure that we took care of their guys and we made sure that I gave them the proper respects and, and, and put all their guys into the freezers and, uh, you know, did all that, the same thing that we do to the Americans, uh, made sure that we were, that they had all the, the supplies they needed. I, I helped them a lot with the medical side of it. And then, um, and then I went and got lunch. And then I, or dinner, and then I got dinner. And then, uh, well, the, well, the first thing I did before I did that, I'll take it back. <clears throat> I knew they were going to go River City. So River City is where they shut down the base of communications until they notify their next of kin. And I knew a reporter was with us and he was writing an article on this. And I knew my dad would see it. And that if he didn't hear from me, he would worry about it. So I ran back to my hooch first before I even did anything else. And I, I Skyped him. And all I told my dad was, as I said, uh, I said, we had a bad day. All you need to know is I'm okay. And um, my dad said, well, what about your teammates? And I said, uh, I said, we just had a bad day. And he said, so you're all right. I said, I promise I'm fine. Um, I'm good. Everything's good. I said, dad, it's all going to be all right. And uh, I said, I'll I'll call you whenever I get another chance and hung up. And so then I went over and took care of the the Afghans. And then um, I went back 
And as soon as I ate, I went back and started getting the trucks ready for the next mission. I, I went and took, you know, my guy's gear and started cleaning their gear out, get trying to spray all the blood out of the trucks. I mean, the, the trucks, my, our trucks were covered in fucking blood. Like just, I mean, you, it's just like, you couldn't have believed the, the amounts of blood in these trucks, clean the, clean the trucks out, refitted them with ammunition, um, re, refitted my med bag and walked in and, and, and went to sleep, got up next day, um, they had said that they're going to do a, a, a week or two week decompression. I couldn't go back to my base because uh, I, 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 we, they were, we were decompressing. And I found a way to sneak back up to my base. I got two guys to go with me and, and a, 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 you know, one of the Marine colonels let me go and um, went back to my base two days later. Got in that night and um, as soon as we got up next morning, as soon as it got light, I went through and packed all my teammates' stuff up in our hooch and uh, put it in the Connex box. And then two days later, got in another gunfight just as, just as fucking big. Uh, how much longer after that were you there? I mean, you get in that next firefight? About three months. And coming home then after all that, I mean, what was uh, – what was it um, do to you know adjust back to yeah, civilian life? Well, you know, so like I was still in the Marine Corps, but I mean, they sent me home to home, <clears throat> and um, you know, it was hard. I mean, it was hard. Uh, it was hard. You know, a lot of a lot of, a lot of struggles. And you kind of going through well, quite a bit or all of it in the book, and I don't want to give too much away for people, but. Uh, there's that, if you don't mind going over that, that night, your, or that, was it night or early morning you're sitting in your car? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I always say, sometimes, sometimes you find yourself in the middle of nowhere and sometimes in the middle of nowhere you find yourself. And it was after that night, uh, now I want to go in more detail that you don't want to, uh, that's when you decided to kind of change things around, um, aside from that though what was your what was the biggest challenge kind of adjusting back to life here in the states man it was just you know i mean look i i had planned on being a marine the rest of my life i mean i had planned on like that was going to be my life i literally went on this i literally went on this deployment to get enough you know to try to get some experience to go to the marsoc selection assessment like that was my dream was to go be an operator my dream was i lo- i mean i loved it like that's what i wanted to do and and I was going to reenlist. I mean, I was going to reenlist over there. Like, I mean, I had all these fucking plans and just, you know, everything I lived my life for, found what I was good at, found what I loved doing. And it was just fucking taken away in one day, you know, everything I loved, everything I fucking loved. My guys, my closest guys I cared about, the, the closest people on, to the face of the planet, you know, all gone. My career, gone. What My job, gone. You know, my plans, gone. You know, like it's just one day. One day, one moment in time, in the middle of fucking nowhere, just every everything that you cared about is gone. And so, how did you, you know, everything's gone at that point? I mean, what's the what's the mental process, or how did you then? Now you're you started, you founded, and now own own the dash, and you started a podcast yeah. owning it. I mean, how do you go from you know, basically nothing? I mean, what's the conversation yeah. with us, others? 
to to get to that point? Oh, you know, man, you got to figure out what, you know, you got to stop being the fucking victim, right? You got to stop. You got to stop. You got to you got to stop coming up with excuses. You got to stop blaming everybody else for your problems. You got to you know, you got to eventually look in the fucking mirror and and, and man the fuck up. You got to, you know, like, look, everybody's got a story. Everybody's everybody's got some events. Everybody's gone through something. Somebody's got it worse. Like, you know. Once you stop feeling sorry for yourself, you know, then you can start, you know, coming up with a plan. And so Own the Dash, where did you come up with the name for the the brand and what is Own the Dash in your words? You know, Own the Dash for me is just, um, you know, it's about living a life worthy of living. You know, I see all these guys who go out and they're, I got PTSD, I can't do shit, I'm an asshole because I lost guys. And it's like, well you know, that's, uh, that's bullshit, right? Like you need to be going out and creating a life that's worthy of their sacrifices. So on the dash comes from a poem Linda Ellis wrote called the dash. And, um, you know, she talks about how one thing that, you know, I, I, I know very well is, is, you know, I know a lot of guys who are now represented by tombstones and, uh, on that tombstone, it's like your last living legacy. And on that tombstone, you've got the date you were born and the date you died. But what really matters is that dash in between. And so you got to own your dash, right? Own your life. Be the best you can fucking be, you know? You don't you can't decide how long your dash is, but you can decide what it looks like. And all that matters is it doesn't matter how much money you got, it doesn't matter how many likes you get on fucking Instagram, it doesn't matter how many downloads you get, views. It doesn't matter how many people like you. What it matters is is how you treat people. And um you know, that, that's ultimately what it, what comes down, it comes down to. And, and that's where, you know, I think that, that, you know, once you start realizing that, once you realize that, that, you know, you can control how you treat people and you can control your attitude is, is, is when you start changing life and you start changing, you know, the way you look at shit. And the podcast came after on the dash, correct? You started owning yeah. it? When did you, when did you start that podcast? I started a couple years ago. I mean, I quit because I just like, I didn't, I kind of got tired of it. I wasn't into it. Um, Fired it back up. But now I actually changed the name of it. It's front towards the enemy. Cause I think that that's, you know, that's something of how, how, how you got to live. Right. I mean, it's a, it's, you know, obviously it comes from a claymore, but I mean, it's the way you got to live life, you know, front towards the enemy. You got to lean into it, you know, face it, get, you know, you run from your problems so, so much. And, and I think that that's, you know, that's ultimately what will get you to a place to where you get the rock bottom, right. Running from your problems, you're going to run into a fucking wall somewhere. And uh, until you lean into it and you start handling it and taking care of it, it's, you know, you're just going to ultimately be surrounded. I apologize. I'm behind a few episodes. I, I started at the very beginning when I first heard you talk about it, I believe with Joe. Uh, it, maybe, yeah, either way, I started listening at the very first episode. The last one I just listened to was with uh, with um, John from The Chive. So I'm a little behind. Yeah. But yeah, I, no, I just saw you post the other day about uh, Front Towards the Enemy. I assume that was a different show that you're a guest on. Okay, so now I'm... I'm no, kidding. no, it's, that's my new show. I, got, I changed it to Front Towards the Enemy. Um, I think it's more of my style, you know, and uh, yeah. So the book Into the Fire, when did you start to think about that or did Bing West come to you with the idea? You know, Bing actually watched me get in a gunfight, right? Like Bing was actually on base one day. He was over there reporting 
and um, we were sitting there talking and I hear a sniper shot and um, I jumped. I mean, I was like, I'm telling you, after I lost my team, I would, I would, I would, I was not, I was, I would, I would fire back in heartbeat. Um, so I got in a gunfight while Bing was there and, you know, and then actually as Bing was leaving, I got into a fight with an army guy at the fuel tanks. Like I was, I was pretty, I, was, I would say I had a short fuse and, um, we stayed in touch. And, you know, after I got my medal, you know, we wrote the book together and I just, all I told him was, I want, you know, I, I want my teammates, you know, to live on forever. Even whenever I can't speak their words anymore, their names anymore. Like I want them to live forever. And that's the way we did it with the book. And, and as Brian alluded to earlier, you received the Medal of Honor for your actions in Ganjgal. And in the book, you talk about the, I guess, the uh, paperwork fiasco that came before that. So you were in the firefight in 2009. When did you actually end up receiving the medal? I don't know. Like, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm oh, Can you hear me? Here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I got you now. I got there you we now. go. So there's a little bit of a paperwork fiasco. Uh, for for your award, when did you end up receiving the medal? About two years later, so I received it in September September fifteenth, two thousand eleven. And I've heard you just you know you talk about on on other podcasts you know you think you don't you don't necessarily associate yourself with that you you talk about how it's just in a box somewhere. Yeah, I mean, well, it's not. It's actually like my. It's in my daughter's diaper bag because I gave it to her. <laughs> Do you have? Did you try to use that as as a, a as a, a platform to stand on afterwards? You know, with the book or starting your company, or is it just I'm Dakota Meyer? Yeah, I'm Dakota Meyer. I'm a Marine. I'm not a Medal of Honor recipient. I'm a United States Marine that received the Medal of Honor. And so, of course, if folks want to check out On the Dash, or if, now I know uh, front front towards the enemy, front towards the enemy. Jesus, yeah. you can get it, Gordon. I believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> English well, is hard under yeah. quarantine. <laughs> uh, where can folks find you online. Yeah, find me Dakota Meyer zero three one seven Instagram On the Dash Flipside Canvas. Um, any of that, you know. And for. Anyone that has served or that is thinking about serving or maybe they're just going into the military now, is there any advice that you would offer them? You know, just do it. Just send it. <laughs> uh, thanks again uh, for joining us tonight. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And thank you for everyone to tuning into this episode. Stay up to date for future guests and live recordings on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me at No Story Left Behind. Don't forget to check out my other show called Rules of the Arena. You can find that on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Vero, and YouTube, and also Twitch, all under Rules of the Arena Podcast, uh, available for download and streaming on BlindNinjaStudios.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and CastBox. If you're in a veteran and in a bad spot, please reach out, talk with a battle buddy, a friend, or even family member, or maybe someone you know or are concerned about, please reach out. You can call one 800 273-8255 or text 838255 to speak with a caring, qualified VA responder available 24-7. Thank you again, everyone, and we will catch you next time.